Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you, and we're looking forward to having a great week. In fact, we're going to have a big week. It seems we're getting over some of the downside of, of COVID. We already have 140 kids registered for VBS this week, and that's not counting the walk-ups that'll come tonight. And so we're, we're thankful to the Lord to have this opportunity to minister to all these kids. But as we do, I'm going to ask you a favor of you. And that is that you pray and pray and pray all throughout the week that the Word of God would fall on sensitive hearts in the lives of these boys and girls. But if you could help us out in any way, that would be great. Brian just informed me that they lost three group leaders this week for various reasons, and so they're very short-handed. So if you could volunteer even just one evening come and help out. It would be great as we shepherd and get these kids around so that they could teach. So consider, you can give one evening this week and let Brian know what evening you can come, Saturday through Thursday, uh, sorry, Sunday through Thursday evening. It'd be a great help to all of us here. It'd really be a blessing to these kids and their families. If you haven't had a chance already, please fill out the attendance forms that are in your rows and pass them down, and maybe you'll meet someone new this morning as you look at who's on the list. Please have your cell phones turned off or turned to silent so that we can not have any interruptions as we are live streaming. And as we live stream, we want to say good morning to those of you that are joining us. And I would say from around the world, we've already heard of people in Iowa this morning. I know that there are people here in town and people in Chico that are watching online. I've heard there are potentially people in Montana and Idaho, perhaps in South Africa. And there's one special congregant that is watching from Belgium this morning. And so we want to say good morning to all of you that are joining us online as we study the Word of God uh, this morning. Well, the phrase, follow your heart, is the guiding buzz phrase for many people today. In our individualistic age, where each one does what is right in his own eyes, follow your heart becomes the ruling mantra on the site lifehack.org. I found the following quote, the only question that matters is whether or not doing it would make you happy. Do you follow your heart and live the life you want? And the more you allow yourself to pursue those things and follow your heart, the happier you will be in life. On another site named Cora.com, there's a lively discussion on the meaning of follow your heart and the general consensus of that it means to do whatever you feel is right. Jiminy Cricket even got in on the act when he told Pinocchio to let his conscience be his guide and to follow his heart. For in the song, When You Wish Upon a Star, he sings, Anything your heart desires will come to you. But is the human heart really the right guide for our actions and life decisions? Is the human heart left to itself a trustworthy source of truth and direction? Well, with all due respect to Jiminy Cricket, Jesus Christ certainly does recognize the importance of the heart, but, and this is a big caveat, it is not the heart left to itself or to its own devices. As we saw last week in Matthew 15, Jesus said that we are to worship the Lord with our hearts and not just with our lips. But in order to do that, we need to base our decisions and moral compass upon the eternal unchanging and truthful word of God. 
As we saw last week and as we'll go further today, anything outside of the Word of God is on a wrong foundation. Anything that is based on the traditions of men will simply not be right in the eyes of God, even if it seems right in the eyes of men. And so we need to be aware of not following the traditions of men instead of the commands of the Word of God. I'm going to ask the doors in the back to be closed. I'm getting a glare coming in from outside off of all the, the car windows. Well, with all of that as an introduction this morning, we get to the second half of our discussion where Jesus had with religious leaders about the role and the importance of traditions in the true worship of God. So in the sermon that we have this morning entitled Dirty Hands and Defiled Hearts, Jesus makes clear that defilement begins in the heart. And so to solve the problems of true worship, you need to get to the heart of the matter. So with that, let's stand and let's hear from God's word as we prepare to enter into a study in Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 to 20. And the eternal and truthful word of God says, And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the stomach, into the mouth, passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it as a blessing from his holy hand for the intentions in which it was given. Please be seated. And let us pray. To you, our God and Father and our great King, we bow now and we're thankful that we can. Thankful that we can be in your presence and hear from your word and be guided by your spirit that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ evermore. For we know, Father, that to know you and to draw deeper into a relationship with you is our greatest need. And so in these moments, Father, would you guide us? Would you teach us by your spirit that we might see in a greater light the beauty and glory of your son and become more like him as we pray in his precious name? Now, in the first part of this chapter, Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees and the scribes, as we've said, about the role and the importance of traditions versus the authority of the Word of God. The Pharisees saw the tradition of the elders, as we looked at last week and explained what that means, as being as important as the Word of God itself. For they had added layer upon layer of interpretation and application and understanding over the course of centuries. And so they were upset that the disciples were breaking their tradition by not washing their hands in the prescribed ritualistic manner. For his part, 
Jesus was frustrated that the scribes and the Pharisees were breaking the command of God. So the difference is breaking the traditions of men or breaking the command of God. And God's word always is the triumph. For Jesus stands on the truth of God's word, and we must do the same today. Now let me just add one word here at the beginning about the role of traditions. It is not the case that all traditions are bad. In fact, the scriptures themselves point to many instances of traditions. Paul speaks many times in his letters of traditions that he has received and that he has passed on. But each of those traditions refers to the core and heart of the gospel message itself. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, who's the Son of God, who's the sole mediator between men and God. In other words, there are traditions that are worth following if they point us closer to Christ because they're based on the Word of God. And so that's good for us then to evaluate the traditions that we follow today. Are they drawing us closer to Christ or are they causing our heart to be drawn and emotionally invested in something else? And so with that, we get to our first major point this morning as you follow along in your sermon outline here and understand. Hear and understand. And our text begins in verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's just important for us to understand the nature of worship and what God requires and demands of us because, in fact, God does give us instructions for how to worship him, and he expects us to follow those instructions that he has given. It's important for us to know what does it mean to have a pure heart? What does it mean to be eligible to stand in his presence? What does it mean when we pray in the words of the psalmist, Create in me a clean heart, O God. We, we instinctively understand that having a pure heart is only happening by the grace of God. By contrast, the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to work from the outside in, forgetting that the gospel penetrates the inside and works its way out. And so Jesus intervenes because his desire is to be the protector of the crowd. So he's protecting the crowd. And so we, we re read our verse again, and he called the people to him and said, hear and understand. He does not want the people who have been overhearing the conversation to fall into the same trap that the scribes and the Pharisees had fallen into and wanted to drag others into. He wants the crowds to understand the true nature of, of defilement and of purity and what allows us to worship God. Now, the purity that we're talking about here, let's remember, is ceremonial purity, which was important under the law. That means we'd be requir required, but then also eligible to enter into the presence of God. It's not here a question of personal hygiene. Hygiene is important, but it's important mainly to the body, whereas ceremonial washing doesn't produce holiness or godliness in and of itself. That is a spiritual washing that comes from the Spirit of God. So Jesus calls the people around him and says, hear and understand. People would have been overhearing what's going on in this interaction between Jesus. Imagine, you're in this crowd, and here comes this delegation with all of their pomp and circumstances. They're coming, and they want to confront and accuse Jesus. And so people are going to listen in. What's happening? And as Jesus is interacting with them, now he turns to the crowd, who would obviously want to have more understanding, more answers after they're hearing this debate going on between Jesus and these religious leaders. They want to understand what is pure worship and understand that purity is inward and spiritual, not external and material. And so Jesus wants them to understand in very plain terms, are we talking about input or output? He says it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. 
Jesus is taking head on a widely held notion that the people had that it was what was on the hands, if the hands were unclean, that is what made one unclean. So it would be more important what you ate and what we put into the mouth was what made us unclean. That was the commonly held notion of the day. But Jesus says, well, you're looking at the wrong source and you're looking in the wrong direction. Attitudes are important and they're more important. Attitudes and ideas and having a pure heart is more important than any ritual purity that we can have. The Pharisees were focusing on the outside, on the external washing of hands to the point where they had ignored the real issue, which was the issue of the heart. You can wash your hands all you want and still have a rotten and sinful heart. There are people today who feel shamed and unclean because of sin and they'll wash themselves and shower themselves and do whatever they can and they're still dirty on the inside. They still have the guilt and the shame that has not been dealt with. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not the washing of hands that makes you pure. External washing cannot take away moral impurity. We're not made spiritually unclean because we make contact with something that is physically dirty. You know, you can walk through the park along the river. Oh, you swallow a bug. You could bite into a piece of fruit and find that part of it is, is rotten and not what you were hoping. Or there might be something in the apple. You can have a piece of partially uncooked meat. And each of those experiences might be unpleasant, but they do not make you spiritually unclean or morally unclean. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person and his ability to worship God. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. So we tell a little lie. Oh, it's just a white lie, but it's a lie nonetheless. So we tell a joke that pushes the borders. Or we criticize someone, or we gossip about someone, or we have a condemning word, or we curse, or we get angry towards someone. Jesus says, these are the things that defile us because they come out of the heart. In a very clear way, then Jesus is saying, it's these scribes and these Pharisees that have come to him. They are, in fact, the unclean ones because they're unclean inwardly. They have not yet repented of their sins to enter the kingdom of heaven. They have not turned away from their sinful hearts and sinful ways and turned to the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. They're trying to produce a righteousness that comes about from their own efforts, their own law-keeping, their own checking of the boxes. They've yet to understand that righteousness is received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is our righteousness. And so Jesus is going after them. And as he goes after them, he refers to them as bad plants and blind guides. Bad plants and blind guides. He's setting the Pharisees straight. He's not backing down. He's standing on the truth of God's word. And you can imagine the reaction then. Jesus has been interacting with these spiritual leaders. And now he turns to the crowd and says, do you understand? And so they're sitting back and they are, they're indignant. They can't believe that Jesus would talk about them in this way. And the crowds are saying, great, because we're under the burden of the law that they're trying to impose upon us. We want to walk in freedom. And Jesus is attacking the very core and convictions of the Pharisees. In fact, he is schooling the teachers. Schooling the teachers. We get to verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? You know, I love how the Bible doesn't hide the realities of life. How the Bible talks about how there's struggles even in human relationships and how there can be hurt feelings and how there can be misunderstandings and there can be diseases and sicknesses and 
and the grossness of sin. So one can imagine that these Jewish leaders are sitting there listening to this itinerant Jewish rabbi speaking to the crowds that are contrary to their own ways. How dare does he say such things about us? How dare does he teach the crowd to not follow our interpretations and our applications? Doesn't he know who we are? We're the spiritual leaders, not this Jesus. But Jesus had come to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? And so how would you respond in this situation? Would you give out more information to try to defend your case? Would you say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, even though you'd spoken the truth. Would you snap off a sarcastic response saying, well, just get over yourselves? Notice that Jesus stands firm in his response. He's the Lord. He knows what is right. He knows what the proper, proper place and role of each person is. And even if he has to bring something that is offensive to someone, he will always speak the truth in love. And Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, who is the embodiment of love, perfect truth and perfect love, speaking the truth in love, still found that people were offended by him many times in his ministry. I think there's a lesson there for us. Just standing on the truth, led by the spirit of truth, but even speaking it in love as gently, as tenderly as we can, there were still people that will be offended by it. If they did it to Jesus, they'll do it to his followers today. That doesn't mean we go out of our way to offend. Just tell the truth, and, and the truth will take care of itself. So Jesus has offended the people in his hometown. At least they took offense at him. Here the scribes and the Pharisees take offense at him. This will be something that will continue and multiply as we get closer to the events that will lead to Passion Week when Jesus will march into Jerusalem and be put on trial and suffer and die and rise from the dead. But Jesus knows that sometimes you just have to shake people out of their self-righteous attitude with a warning about the truth spoken in love. And that's what Jesus does here. As he goes on from telling the truth, now he goes on to giving warnings of judgment. Warnings of judgment. Jesus responds to this claim. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by this? He responds with, a show, with showing that the Father is in sovereign control in verse 13. He said, every plant that my heavenly Father is not planted will be rooted up. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says that it's the Father who plants his true plants. It is the Father who is the gardener. It is the Father who is the one who's in control of all things in the garden. And that there are those who think that they have been planted by the Father, who have put themselves in the position of thinking they represent God, who will find out that they were not planted by the Father at all. And what we have here is a, a briefer version of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You recall in chapter 13 where we saw that there were good seeds that were planted by the gardener, the, the father, the Lord, and bad seeds that were planted by the enemy. And the seeds grow together, and they start to look alike for a time until the fruit appears on the good seed, but it doesn't appear on the bad seed. And what does Jesus say? Leave them and let them grow to the harvest. And then the harvester will take out the weeds, bundle them up, and throw them into the fire. Jesus is basically in summary form referring to that by saying every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. 
and I'm certain the Pharisees did not miss the meaning behind this illustration. Several times in the prophet Isaiah, this imagery was used of God and Israel as the harvester and the harvest. Both in Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 61.3, the Lord says he is the one who plants the righteous ones who are the work of his hands and who will give him glory. Now the Pharisees, as they were wont to do, would add to the word of God to give a bigger application. And in what later showed up in the Mishnah, the Mishnah was the actual writing down of the tradition of the elders. In the Mishnah, it was assumed that all of the people of Israel were planted by God. And Jesus challenges that teaching head on. Because he also knows that in Isaiah 5, there's an image of God who is the harvester in Israel that is the vineyard of the Lord. And God rebukes the vineyard of the Lord because they have not produced a fruitful harvest. And therefore he will judge them. For it is the harvest that reveals the difference. Now Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who knew the law better than anyone else when he had his life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, understood then that there was good seed planted by God and bad seed not planted by God, and that it was not a matter of ethnicity that would cause someone to be saved. We are saved by grace, not by race. For as he explains the gospel in the book of Romans, in Romans 9, chapter 6, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That there is a spiritual Israel that is founded upon Jesus Christ and all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of God will receive the promises that were given because Jesus is the focal point and the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is giving here a future eschatological judgment of the Pharisees. They had taught with such confidence, with such authority, that which was not from God. The tradition of the elders had added to the word of God. But they had invented things with their own fertile imaginations that had added on and made the law and their interpretation such a burden. And Jesus wants to warn the crowd against accepting those kind of interpretations and applications. He's basically saying that those Pharisees who have come to him on that day were not of God. They were not saved. They had not been planted by the Father. And I think there's a warning here for us today. That one can be in the service of God, perhaps self-appointed or otherwise. One can have zeal, and one can have influence, and one can have talent, and one can somehow have an impact in the lives of others, and yet not be planted of God. But salvation is completely a gift of God from beginning to end. And it is His Word who shows that He is sovereign over all. And so what is the reaction of our hearts? What should it be? Oh God, have mercy on my heart. Have mercy on me that I would be humble before you. I want to live for you. And I want to be saved by you. That's what Jesus is saying. He, the plea goes out. Don't harden your heart. But turn to the Lord and cry out for mercy. So after he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. That alone would have shaken the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He goes on in verse 14 to tell the crowd, let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Don't go with them, Jesus says. They're blind. They can't lead you any closer to God because they are not from God nor sent by God. And so we have another brief parable here, as Peter will say in just a verse or so. The blind lead the blind, and they fall into the pit. 
The ones who claim to know the truth and lead others in the truth are in fact themselves in need of someone else to lead them to the truth. And here they are facing the truth, mano a mano, face to face, and they're still turning away. Powerful illustration for Jesus to use. The blind leading the blind. It was the first sign of the coming of the Messiah, that the healing of the blind. It was the first one given by the prophets that when Jesus would heal the blind or the Messiah would heal the blind, we would know that this is the coming of the Messiah. It'd be a powerful illustration as well for the fact that there was so much physical blindness in Israel in those days. Because of the numerous eye diseases and illnesses, it was often common to see beggars along the side of the road, outside of the villages. Now, how can the blind lead the blind? And if a blind man physically, a physically blind man, cannot find bread to feed himself, how can the spiritually blind man lead others to find the bread of life? The fact is he can't, and that's what Jesus is saying. Don't follow them. It gets even harder for the Pharisees because as Paul is addressing again the church in Rome, and he's taken about a chapter and a half to tell the Gentiles what sinners they are, and while he's telling the Gentiles what sinners they are, the Jews would be listening in, and then in Romans 2 he turns and says, now you, Jewish people, he tells them what sinners they are, so that he finishes in Romans 3 by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are all condemned before God. But one of the things that Paul uses in Romans 2, verse 19, he says, Now you who call yourselves guides for the blind, or light for the blind. He's referring to those religious teachers in Israel who had not yet seen the light, who were not walking in the truth. So Jesus says they are the blind leading the blind. Paul says that they are lost sinners. They thought they were the ones leading people to the truth and to the light, but they're in darkness themselves. And so this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes will get bigger and grow and get bigger and grow, and it will lead to eventually Jesus being turned over by the Jews to the Romans to be crucified. And in doing so, the Pharisees will prove Jesus right, that in fact they were still the children of the darkness and not the children of the light. We'll see that more as we move through the gospel according to Matthew. But for now, the, this harsh but true statement of Jesus, watch out for spiritual leaders that are bad plants and blind guides. Teachers of God will lead you to love God, not to love them. The third point we see is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. Now this is not the first time that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. It will not be the last. It's not the first time the Pharisees are offended by Jesus. It will not be the last. But Jesus now, he's, he's dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's addressed the crowds, but now he's going to focal down to, focus down to fo looking at the Pharisees. Uh, not the Pharisees, his disciples and teaching his disciples what the application is of what he's saying. It's obvious that they still have need to grow in their understanding. The disciples, though they've learned a lot, still have a ways to go. Though they've matured and understood some things, they still have a way to go. And we see that because... They come and ask the question, help us understand. Verse 15, Pete, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Explain the parable to us. Now in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has already said that the secrets of the kingdom have been revealed to the disciples. But it remains clear 
that they are still in some ways not understanding what Jesus is revealing to them. Jesus has just issued a great challenge to the traditional way of thinking. And I think that helps us to understand a little bit of why Peter came and asked the question. Jesus has just challenged directly the traditional way of thinking concerning hands and defilement and ritual washings and defilement, purity, all those things. And so for even the sympathetic Jew, this was a lot to take in, this radical overturning of a system, the system that they had been raised in, system that they had grown to understand. So I can understand why they would come to Jesus and say, help us understand. Help us put this together. You're calling us to a radical change of worldview, a radical change of lifestyle. They need a little more information about why should we be changing some of the things that we have been doing. But perhaps Jesus, and I think it's clear, thought that they would have more information, so he responds to Peter, are you also without understanding? They should have known better by now. They've been with him for a while. Now, remember back in Matthew 13, verse 51, Jesus asked them, do you understand what I'm saying to you? And the apostles said, yes. And at that time, I said, we're going to see that they are speaking better than they know. That though they say they understand certain things, as we continue to go through the gospel according to Matthew, it'll become clear, ah, uh, no, they didn't understand as much as they thought they did. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, are you still blind? Actually, he addresses it to all of the disciples because the you here is in the plural form. Though it is Peter who comes and asks the question, it is clear that he's asking as a spokesman for the 12 because in the, in the original language, it's plural. Or as Pastor Brian would say, all y'all. He's saying, all y'all are you still in blindness and need of understanding. So Jesus will answer the question. He will give them the understanding that they need. But how are we doing? You know, the disciples had been walking with Jesus now for a period of time and been hearing the parables and seeing the miracles and interacting with him and spending nights around the campfire with him and sharing meals with him, and they still come and say, they don't get it. And here we are, you know, and we go to church week by week, and we go to Sunday school, and we go to connection groups, and we send our kids off to camp, and we should know better than we do. We should do better than we do. And yet so often we act without understanding. And we need the Lord to teach us on an ongoing manner the deeper things of God. So the first thing is, let's admit that's the case. No pretension, no claims, no putting on airs. We're still not where we need to be. And we just go to God and admit that. We still need to grow. We still need to learn. We still need to understand. We still need to repent. Start there and say, God, help me learn. And then repent of our obstacles and our desires not to do things the right way. Or just maybe we're a little bit too lazy than we should be when we're dealing with the things of God. And we confess our sins and we receive forgiveness. And God always grants it. And then let's do what Peter does. Lord, help us understand. You know, sin can cause our hearts to turn away from God. We turn away, and we don't want to look at Him, and we don't want to say, I want to go back to Him and ask questions. No, I can't, because I've sinned again. And we go to the Father, and we say, Lord, I did it again. And He says, you did what again? Because when He forgives us, He doesn't hold it against us. And so keep going back to Him. Lord, help me understand. 
Keep admitting your need to grow. Keep admitting you don't understand the word enough and you need him to be your teacher. We can learn from this example of Peter. Lord, help us understand. And Jesus goes on and gives the answer that food is not the problem. Food is not the problem. As it says in verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Literally, if we were to translate it, it says, goes into the latrine. We know what that means. Jesus is giving a basic explanation of biology in the process of digestion. You eat some food, the body uses it, gets rid of what it doesn't use. But even if we happen to consume some bad food, it affects the stomach. It's not a moral issue. It does not disqualify us from worshiping God in a proper manner. And in the early church, as people from Jewish backgrounds, from Gentile backgrounds were coming together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, they're struggling to know what to do with all these food laws in the Old Testament. Now, first of all, we said that Jesus fulfilled them, and so we recognize then that we're, we're complete in Christ. But it's still an issue that has to be dealt with. And so the writer of Hebrews, as he is writing about the gospel and the impact of the gospel on this group of Jewish believers that are tempted to turn away from Jesus because it's more comfortable to do the traditional Jewish practices than it is to be persecuted for Jesus. And so he's teaching them a number of things about Jesus. And I'm just going to rip a couple of verses out of the middle of Hebrews chapter 9 whereas he is in the process of explaining how we can be pure and what are the uh, different accoutrements of worship that are involved in the sanctuary, says this. What's going on in the, the sanctuary is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, and here's the key phrase, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Do you see that? That what is external does not take away the guilt that's on the conscience of the worshiper but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. So all those things were given as a sign, could not deal with the ultimate guilt on our conscience. They were to point us to something that would come. So the issue is not food. The issue is the spiritual sacrifice, what Christ did on our behalf as he was our sacrifice and takes away our guilt before a holy God, cleanses our heart and our conscience. Paul has to deal with this as well as he's writing to the church in Rome, the church of Rome that has people coming from everywhere across the Roman Empire. And they're battling with themselves. Can I drink this or not drink this? Can I eat this or not eat this? And they're dividing themselves. And he takes a chapter and a half in the book of Romans to talk about it. And we'll just summarize his conclusions in Acts four, or, um, Romans 14, verses 14 and 17. Where Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It's a question of the conscience, of what people decide that they have to do, but they can't bind the conscience of another believer over something that is not forbidden in the law, and they can't require something that is not also not required in the law. And in verse 17 he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not what goes into the mouth, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth that is the source of defilement. The source of defilement is not the mouth. It is the heart. So we get to the heart of the problem, which is, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. 
We've already seen that what shows up on the lips reveals what is truly in the heart. We've already seen that warning in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what's going on in the heart of someone, listen to them. We have this adage today, when someone tells you who he really is, believe him. And so if we listen to what people say as they go throughout the day and they encounter different situations and different people, what they say is what's percolating in their hearts, according to Jesus. That is why then going far back before Jesus, King Solomon in Proverbs says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So Jesus, as he gives this expression or this saying that it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person, he's overthrowing the entire system of the tradition of the elders. He says the problem is ultimately spiritual and not physical. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And according to Dr. Joseph Stoll, the heart is used in Scripture as the comprehensive term for the authentic person. The heart is the part of our being where we deliberate, we decide, we, we determine. The, place, the heart is the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The heart is that comprehensive term that includes the whole person, his feelings, his desires, his passions, his thoughts, his understanding, his will. And it's from that heart, the center, the core, the central operating place of the person that overflows all sorts of sin and spiritual bile. It is the sinful heart that is what makes one defiled and unclean. So what Jesus is referring to without using the terms, we're going to do a little bit of theological digging this morning, and that what we have here is the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is not the original sin that Adam committed. The doctrine of original sin is what we read in Psalm 51, which says we are born in sin, and we are by nature sinners in rebellion against God. The verses that follow then talk about total depravity, that sin affects all aspects of our being. If sin affects the heart, and the heart is the comprehensive part of who we are, the central operating place of who we are, then sin is going to affect every aspect, our will, our decisions, our mind, our understanding, our thoughts. Now, notice I say total depravity. I do not say utter depravity. While the Bible clearly says that the heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, and Ephesians 2, 1 says we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Total depravity does not mean we are as bad or as wicked as we could possibly be. By the common grace of God, police force and doctors and just families, we don't sin as much as we could. But it, total depravity does mean we're as bad off as we could possibly be. We can't save ourselves. We're unable to save ourselves and even turn to God. We need heart surgery that only God the Holy Spirit can operate, who works in our hearts. We need the new birth. We need to pass from death to life. We need to pass from the deadness of sin to being alive in Christ. And as the writer, or the prophet Ezekiel describes it, I put the reference on the screen, Ezekiel 36, I'm going to read the verse. And notice who is acting here. It's, it's the Lord who is talking. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. And we see that God is the one that is doing this divine work of taking out our rebellion, our sinful heart, our stone-cold heart to the things of God, and gives us a heart of flesh that says, what an awesome Savior. I have to run after him. I want to serve him. I want to love him. Oh, God, have mercy on me. And in Jeremiah 31, as this happens in the new birth, it happens in the new covenant, we're told that the law is written on our hearts. So now, therefore, what we didn't want before, we now want. What we didn't obey before, we now want to obey. So that what proceeds from the heart is now the things that will be pleasing to God because he's planted it in our hearts in the first place. But in order for us to understand the good news, we've got to make sure we firmly understand the bad news. And that's the sins of the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What's interesting is the sins that are listed here follow what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments. In the interaction that we have with one another, the first table are the things that deal with God, the first four. And then the fifth one, honor your father and mother. He's already addressed that, has he not, in the first part of this chapter? You're not honoring your father and mother. And now in this section, he deals with the sixth to the tenth commandments. What comes out of our heart is a violation of the second table of the ten commandments. As they're found in places like Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And actually, in the original language, they're put in the plural. The ESV renders them all singular, but in the, in, the, in the Greek, they should be plural. So adulteries, immoralities, thefts, plural. But really, it's just pointing to all of us, so you should use the plural tense in that sense. And in Matthew 5 to 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already addressed this, that it is he who is the proper interpreter of the law. He is the focus of the law. As we are now in the kingdom of heaven, this is how we're going to live and fulfillment of the law because he's already fulfilled it and now he is empowering us to obey it. But I think by any estimation, this is an ugly list. But we find ourselves on this list. Evil thoughts come to us all. They flash across our mind in an instant and more often than we want to admit. Thoughts that we have about people, that, that we have about a situation, what we'd like to do or say, what we'd like to have happen. And so as we're in the Spirit of God, we need to have the, Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, and control those thoughts and bring them to the cross and say, no, I want the thoughts of God. The next one is mentioned is murder. It's actually plural in the original, murders. Jesus has already addressed this, saying that murder actually begins as anger in the heart. So it's a violation of thou shalt not murder, which is the sixth commandment. But how often our hearts rage towards other people, often in an irrational manner. The next two sins really are addressed by the commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus describes them as adultery and sexual immorality. We know what these sins are. It is any sexual expression outside of the confines of biblical marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Any expression outside of that is sin. The Greek word here is porneia. 
you hear the word pornography, which is its origin. God has a high and holy view of marriage, and we should as well. As we move on, we see that there are thefts that are mentioned under the command, thou shalt not steal, and it means taking anything that does not belong to you. Could be money, could be an idea, could be reputation, could be plagiarism and academics, something similar. And here we are in an internet age, and now we have this artificial intelligence, and we have chat GPT that can create sermons, it can create messages, it can create articles. And we must be men and women of integrity that we will not pass off as our own the ideas that come from something else unless we attribute it to that source. And it's going to get to be more and more of a challenge. But thou shalt not steal. Endures forever. And is the required behavior of God's people. The last two then are covered in thou shalt not bear false witness. All of them are included in thou shalt not covet. Because if you covet, you're going to steal. If you covet, you're going to slander. If you covet, you're going to commit adultery. If you covet, you're going to do other things. So here we see things like perjury, lies, cursing, plots. It's interesting that this word is sometimes translated as blasphemies, which I think fits the context. Not, but in this case, not just slander against God, but slander against people. And it's interesting then that Jesus... Think of the confrontation he's been having. They have come to him, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're accusing him of wrongdoing. And in that context, in his response, he says, out of the heart comes blasphemies. As they falsely accuse him, even as they're falsely accusing others. As Charles Spurgeon reflected on this list, he exclaimed, what must that heart be out of which so many evils pour forth? If these are but the V's, what must the hive be? And yet, this list exposes the heart of each one of us. It shows our great need for the gospel. And then we wonder why we live in such a crumbling and evil culture. But we shouldn't be surprised if this is what overflows out of the hearts of each person. And so we see the need of the gospel. The need to be born again by the Spirit of God, to be set free from the power of sin, to be set free from the traditions of religion so that we can have a proper relationship with Almighty God. So we have a heart that is transformed by the mercy and grace of God. Jesus gives us a tough word here, but he doesn't back down. And though it is not popular today to say man is not good by nature and only made sinful by society. If that's the case, how did society get so evil? Because society is evil because the citizens are evil. Man is sinful by nature and he's sinful by choice. And the prophet Isaiah did not hold back. He encounters the living God in Isaiah chapter 6. And what does he say? Does he say, oh, those rascals over there? No, listen to what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Unclean lips that reveal what is at the core. And so the solution is spiritual heart surgery, not a self-help program. The solution is the new birth given by the Holy Spirit. It is not a self-salvation program whereby we clean ourselves up and bring about our own moral reformation. 
Our greatest need, my friends, is not to have ritually clean hands. It is to have regenerated hearts. So that then we'll be able to obey the word of God, love the word of God, serve the word of God. And so as we're made alive to the things of God, we recognize the need then that we have for that daily confession of sin and cleansing as we grow in every righteousness because we would say, help me, O God, and cleanse my heart. Now Jesus did not come to do away with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And because he fulfilled it, and if we are in him, he is our righteousness and we are declared righteous before God. And once we are clothed in his righteousness, we have the desire and the ability and the joy and the love to do what we didn't want to do before. We want to live out the moral law of God now in loving obedience to him. We do it because he's at work in us, as Paul said, to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And so that heart that is clean then desires the things of God, looks to serve God, puts aside selfishness in order to be involved with the people of God, longs to worship with the people of God, loves to hear the word of God. It's a heart that obeys the Lord in making disciples of all nations because it's been set free now to obey lovingly what God has required. So as we close today, I want you to think of the question, in light of what Jesus is dealing with here with the Pharisees and the scribes, what type of heart do you have today? Do you have a heart that hungers for the things of God? Do you cry out, oh God, give me such a heart. Create in me a clean heart. Wash me. Cleanse my heart. I want to be pure. I want to be free from my sins. Because without our hearts being clean and being washed, we will all die from the contamination of sin. It is that inner defilement that will kill us all. But it's the new birth in Christ that brings eternal life and hope and joy and love and fruitful obedience. And it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength and it is the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. And we have this desire to just please God because we love God. And we love God because he loved us first. And then this Christian journey becomes such a wonderful adventure. Just walking with the Lord and doing what he says and seeing him at work and giving him praise and growing in his grace. And it becomes this joyful adventure as we walk hand in hand with our Lord. But we cry out with the psalmist. He said, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now next week, Jesus is going to leave the region of Galilee. And he's going to spend some time in some Gentile lands to show that the gospel is for all types of people, from all kinds of places, not just for the house of Israel. But until we get to that point where now he's going to leave his Galilean ministry where he's going to spend some time there before turning to head to Jerusalem, what are some lessons we can take away from our time today? Well, one, because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We repent of our sins and turn to the Lord for forgiveness and healing. Martin Luther had it right. Repentance is a daily thing in the life of the believer because every day we, we realize there are things that we've turned against the Lord and we've got to turn away from those things and turn back to the Lord. We just confess our sins and admit that God is right. Secondly, because only the Lord can give a new heart, we call on him to renew and cleanse our hearts from sin and rebellion. He's a good surgeon. He's the good doctor. He wants to heal our hearts. But we look to him to do that because we can't heal our own hearts. 
Because the word of God gives the guiding light. We will depend on it over any traditions that come from men. That's the warning here in chapter 15, is our hearts can worship things and have great emotional investment in things, but they're not from the Lord. And so we need to worship that which comes from the word of God. But because we're still all in process, right? We're still learning. We're still growing. We're still going step by step. Because we still need to learn about the things of the Lord, we turn to him in humility and ask for his help to understand his word. The enemy will say, you have sinned and God will not listen. The word of God says, come to me, confess your sins. I'll cleanse you, I'll unfold you, and I'll walk with you. Let's do that this week. Experience the joy of walking with the Lord as we walk in the fullness of the Spirit for the glory of his Son. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that ultimately being cleansed from our defilement is not a human activity. Because, Father, the longer we walk with you, the more we realize the depth of our sin and how grateful we are that it is the cleansing waters of our Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood that forgives us and sets us free. But, Father, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get complacent. Remind us of the beauty of the gospel, that it is all of you for our well-being and eternal good, but ultimately for your glory. Help us to take to heart, Father, what we've heard this morning, that the problem is our own heart that needs to continually be cleansed and refreshed. But thank you, Father, that you've already promised to work in us and to work through us so that we'll become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this week, remind us to pray for these kids that come to VBS and remind us of how dependent we are like children to have that childlike faith in you moment by moment and trust you as a good father and then cause us to be quick to rejoice and give thanks when we see you at work. Use us this week for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.